You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast, post-election edition. This is Jordan Schrader, your host this week. And with me at the NNO are Rashan Aish, Will Doran, Andy Spey, and coming in via phone from our McClatchy DC Bureau, Brian Murphy. Uh, so we have a ton to talk about with the election results. Uh, overall, it seems like it was a pretty good night for the Democrats who were able to break the Republican supermajority, um, but with some, some limits because the Republicans, after all, do still have a majority and they weren't, Democrats weren't able to get win any of the three congressional seats that were their big targets. Um, the Democrats, of course, still uh, took over the U.S. House. So, um, and then on the courts, the Democrats also had some victories. Um, so let's start with the uh, supermajority and um, what it means now that um, Republicans no longer have this veto-proof uh, threshold. Will, you want to? Uh yeah, so, I mean, obviously the, the big takeaway is even though he wasn't on the ballot. Roy Cooper ends up with a lot more power after this election. Uh, Republicans have to respect uh, his ability to veto things now. Uh, this past two years, you know, the first half of his term, he has vetoed a bunch of bills, and it's been entirely symbolic. Uh, legislature has been over to override basically 95% of his vetoes. And but now with the loss of the supermajorities. That's not going to be the case. And so what that means is uh, Democrats are going to have more influence over things like the state budget, uh, you know, some other big uh, you know, issues that are going to require a lot of time and effort at the legislature. And now, you know, not necessarily a bipartisan compromise because Republicans still have the majorities in both houses. They didn't lose the majority. Um, but, you know, a little bit more uh, attention paid to, to what the Democrats want. And our uh, Craig Jarvis's story last night uh, said that he Cooper had actually been blocked 20 times on on vetoes, um, which is kind of amazing in just a couple years. Um, so we won't see nearly as many of those anymore. Um, which lawmakers were you guys surprised about going down? I was surprised by Wesley Meredith out um, in Cumberland County around Fayetteville. Uh, his if you look at his district, it doesn't capture many of the inner city districts. Um, and he is the Senate whip uh, for the Republicans and had lots of money. So uh, I, you know, there were some things swirling around about him um, that his opponent, Kurt Davieri, I think is his name, brought up. Um, but I still expected what Meredith to pull it out and he didn't. Um, uh, was there anyone that surprised you, Will? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I talked last time about the, the Wilmington area, and there was kind of a, a split down in Wilmington, which surprised me. Uh, the incumbents in the House all won, uh, and that includes, they have basically three House incumbents in Wilmington. That includes two Republicans uh, who won re-election, but the incumbent senator, Michael Lee, is, uh, looks like he's lost. Now, I th it is a pretty close race, so there could still be a recount in that one, um, but last you know, last I looked, he was he was down. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. But that that kind of surprised me that uh, you know Democrats were able to flip that Senate seat that neither of the two uh, House seats down there 
Um, the other thing that, you know, obviously is um, going to be a big change, I don't know if it was so surprising because Wake County was such a, a huge Democratic bastion, but, you know, Nelson Dollar going down. He's the, the top budget writer mm -hmm. uh, for the Republicans, and, uh, you know, he lost his seat in Cary. Um, so, you know, there will be kind of a, you know, a scramble to figure out who, you know, takes over for him with, you know, all, I mean, that's a huge job figuring out, you know, where the state's, you know, multi-billion dollar budget goes every year. So they relied on him heavily. I know this is sort of inside baseball, but when you and I and our That's team what we're all about here at Domecast. That's right. Inside <laughs> baseball. Well, you know, every year when the budget rolls around, we call we called Nelson Dollar and see, you know, what's going to make it, what's not going to make it, what's the hang up and um he was generally pretty responsive to me. I can't yeah, when the when the hurricanes were hitting us earlier this fall, he was my first call to figure out, okay, you know what, you know what kind of money is the legislature going to set aside? How fast is this going to go? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's he's the money guy, um, or was the money guy. Right. It'll be interesting to see who they pick for, say, Senate Whip, which uh, w which Meredith was, uh, and who they'll who's going to take the budget writing responsibilities if. You know, you'll have someone from uh, suburban or urban areas, or if they'll pick someone that's or people that are in safer districts. Frankly, there's not a lot of people from urban and suburban areas left anymore on the Republican side. I mean, if you looked at where the, the Democrats were able to flip, it was largely in Wake and Mecklenburg counties. Um, I, uh, you know, just looking at the numbers, there's 33 state House and Senate seats that are either all or partially in Wake and Mecklenburg County. And after this election, the Republicans are going to have two or three mm -hmm. of those 33. We should note, too, that uh, another surprising uh, result was uh, longtime state senator Trudy Wade losing uh, her Senate uh, district around Greensboro, which, again, that fits that theme of uh, incumbent Republicans losing in urban and suburban areas. Um, she wasn't – I didn't see her as too vulnerable, but – uh, late in the election cycle, she came out with some interesting campaign ads that, uh, you know, at the time might seem par for the course, but in retrospect were so, you know, odd. They might have tipped us off that maybe she was in trouble. Yeah, a lot of people criticize those ads as being racist. They're focused on the migrant caravan and all that, which obviously the state legislature has absolutely nothing to do with. Um, and, you know, a lot of people saw that as trying to, you know, really fire up the base. So, you know, clearly, I guess, you know, her, her team saw that she was in danger and was trying to, to get the base fired up to get out there. And that was interesting because if you looked at Guilford County, all of the incumbents won in Guilford County except for her. Um, and she, she's had some local controversies. She's kind of sparred with the newspaper there before, too. So And the uh, city council, I believe. And the city council. So. Mm -hmm. And on, on the other side, uh, one thing we should note is that uh, the Democrats lost one of their leaders, too. Uh, Bobby Richardson um, was a, I believe she was the minority whip or deputy whip, uh, and she lost her race to, um, was it Lisa Stone Barnes? That's correct, and that's out in, uh, in eastern North Carolina. Right. Um, did you want to talk about that, Rochelle? Yeah, sure. That one was a pretty close race, too, which, you know, could have gone either way, but somehow Barnes managed to pull it off. Um, that was one of the districts that we reported on earlier that they had decided was heavily racially gerrymandered and then kind of redrew it to be a bit more fair. But 
having kind of talked to Richardson and stuff like that, I was kind of, you know, surprised that she lost it because she was doing heavy campaign work and so was Barnes, but that one was a bit more of a toss-up. Like you say, though, they redrew it and, and it became a pretty red district. Yeah. And uh, gerrymandering did play a role in all this. Um, there were other districts that um, went to the benefit of Democrats because of redistricting. Um, I think uh, uh, John Blust and uh, a couple other incumbent lawmakers left rather than run for re-election because they had districts that just were not looking very safe anymore and uh, Democrats were able to win in those districts. There was one out in Greenville. Um, so there were several in eastern North Carolina uh, that, that Democrats did lose, though, beca partly because of redistricting. George Graham was another one who um, went down, although we didn't have results in Kinston for a while for some reason. Uh, there was a, a, a couple of, of glitches uh, like that. Um, but you know, by and large, it seemed like uh, mostly Democrats did well in urban areas and not so well in suburb in uh, rural areas. There was the one that surprised me was um, Ray Russell, who won out in the mountains in Ashe and Watauga counties, and um, unseated a uh, um, pretty prominent lawmaker, Jonathan Jordan, uh, in what would you would think would be um, you know a pretty rural Republican district. It did ha it does have um, Appalachian State. Uh, or at least part of that in it. So, uh, and, and I saw that he won in, Ru Russell won in Watauga County. So that probably accounts for that. But Andy, you wrote about the, the not only the urban-rural divide, but also the fact that Wake County in particular has really changed politically, and that accounts for some of these uh, losses and why all but one Republican in Wake County in the legislature has been uh, turned out of office. That's right. That was our uh, story. I think it was on the front page today. Uh, in the since 2010 or 2011, Wake County has gained over a hundred thousand new voters, and most of those, um, far and away, are unaffiliated. Um, there are, th I think, 30 or 40 thousand registered Democrats, about 12 thousand new registered Republicans, and over a hundred thousand unaffiliated. So, um, you have a lot of uh, I, I don't know enough to be able to say how they typically vote, but I can tell you what's happened in the last decade. Um, they, Democrats, took control of the school board in 2011. They took control of the county commission in 2014, um, and that led to uh, a, a transit plan uh, that includes buses and rails uh, in the next 10 years uh, being passed in 2016. Uh, and 20. 15 or 17 uh, Democrats beat, or Democrats are unaffiliated candidates beat every Republican on the Raleigh City Council, so the, the City Council has no Republicans anymore. Uh, the county went entirely blue, as, as you might expect, for Cooper and Hillary Clinton and Josh Stein and other prominent Democrats in 2016. And then this year, you know, there's only one Republican legislator left, and that's Johnny Mac Alexander. Uh, in the Senate, the state Senate. Uh, so it's almost completely blue. And Alexander, we should note, he, he won by a small margin, about 2,000 votes. And that's about how many votes he had. Uh, he beat out uh, the Democrat by in Franklin County. He has, Franklin County is much more rural uh, than even Johnston or other neighboring um, counties here. Uh, so 
you know, some people would say <laughs> he only won because it because he has that rural uh, backstop. Yeah, it's almost like you can't draw a district in Wake County anymore that a Republican can win, at least not in Democratic leaning years now, and, and that this could all change again in a in a more Republican favorable year. But right, although I don't think any of the uh, there are several that were within uh, one pr- one or two percentage points, and I think we're still waiting on votes to be counted or recounted, but none of those were in Wake. They were pretty decisive victories. In Mecklenburg, it seems like it's the same kind of deal. The, the local government is turning over uh, to Democrats now, too, almost entirely. Yeah, I mentioned that. I, l- I looked at some of the, the turnout issues, um, not issues, just uh, turnout, and really it was... Uh, women candidates who were driving a lot of these democratic gains uh you know andy you mentioned the the big democratic wins in the you know county commission the school board a couple years ago this year voters added more women to both those boards here in wake county in mecklenburg county the county commissioners there is now all democrats for the first time in like 50 something years i think it's 52 years or something and that was because three female democrats beat the three male republicans who were on the county commissioners there um and i talked to Janet Hoy, who's the president of the League of Women Voters here, and she said, uh, you know, women are really flexing their political muscles in a way that they haven't before. She kind of alluded to the, the Me Too movement and said there's basically a lot of things happening nationally that are giving women more courage to, you know, step up and run for office, to become activists, to get out there and be engaged and educate their friends and their families and their neighbors, and I, I think you saw that in a big way. And, and I would point out that the urban-rural divide, uh, which we've seen in Wake County and Mecklenburg, is just uh, echoing what we're seeing nat- nationwide, which is that you know the ur- the rural counties are getting more red, and that urban counties and suburban counties are getting bluer, um, and and which is leading to the some of the polarization I think that we're seeing across the country. And now it seems as if North Carolina is is joining that trend of having very ur- blue urban centers and very red rural parts and and what does that mean for governance and policy i I think has some long-term implications and that's one thing that uh our uh, colleague jim morrill pointed out in our story today about the urban rural divide and democrats doing so well um in urban and suburban areas is i think he got a quote from someone on the charlotte city council or board of commissioners i can't remember which and they said you know they worry that about their relationship with state government you know uh how will state leaders treat uh people from urban areas and will they consider their needs Um, and vice versa you know how will these city councils uh talk about state leaders will they you know blast them from their pulpits you know or will they try to work with them and build relationships i know raleigh's uh mayor Nancy McFarlane has been very calculated. She's unaffiliated. Um, you rarely hear her uh, speak poorly of uh, state leaders, uh, at least in public. So it, it ought to be interesting to see um, it just what things, uh, what those relationships are, as you mentioned, um, between city leaders and people from cities in suburban areas and uh, state leaders. Um, where uh, Phil Berger, the Senate, the Senate Majority Leader is from a rural area, as is Tim Moore, and neither of them lost their seats, so presumably they'll both still be there. Another sign of that blue wave in the uh, confined to the urban areas 
um, was the uh, was the sheriff's race in Wake County and uh, Gerald Baker, who really nobody saw coming, uh, at least I didn't, uh, unseated uh, Donnie Harrison, the longtime uh, Republican sheriff. And um, so that could uh, it could have implications for those counties' immigration policies. Um, and meanwhile, there's there's a lot of uh, African American sheriffs, not just um, Baker, um, winning in some of the the larger counties all over the the state. I read the the seven biggest counties in the state all unelected white sheriffs and replaced them with black sheriffs this year. Some of them in the primary and some of them in yeah. the general, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, th I think it's important to point out, too, um, that's a huge deal, but uh, the ACLU of North Carolina spent $100,000 on an ad campaign that, uh, they say, raised awareness. They're not, they're, they're not allowed to advocate for any candidate over another, but they raised awareness about uh, Wake County Sheriff Donnie Harrison uh, cooperating with ICE, which has been obviously a very controversial thing in Wake County, as we've mentioned earlier. Uh, pretty liberal place, so um, that also might have had something to do with his downfall. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Brian, the congressional districts uh, did not flip to the Democrats, the key ones that we were all watching, uh, and uh, those districts, um, you know, which are drawn in ways to, uh, uh, in some cases, split big cities, um, in other cases, go around big cities, like in Raleigh, uh, and leave a lot of Democrats uh, in the um, more in more urban districts. Um, those three districts did not flip, and um, we have Republicans in all three of those. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about what ca what caused that in the ninth, the tw the second, and the thirteenth. Yeah, you know, Democrats took the U.S. House and they did it by winning, flipping s seats in red states like South Carolina, Utah, Kansas, Oklahoma. But in North Carolina, which is considered a purple state, has elected a Democratic governor, but Republicans to the Senate, they were unable to flip any of those seats, um, despite $16.2 million in outside spending. Now, that was on both sides. But these were three hotly contested races. And um, outside of the Mark Harris-Dan McCready race in, in the Charlotte area, which stretches all the way to Fayetteville, um, they weren't all that close. I mean, Ted Budd uh, beat Kathy Manning by about six points. Um, in, in the end, George Holding beat Linda Coleman in the Wake County, uh, suburban Wake County uh, district, which also stretches into to Nash and Johnston and, and other places, um, by about uh, 17,000 votes. Um, so it was close, but not, you know, you're not biting your nails over that in the end. There's no recount or anything like that. There was a concession and, and an acceptance. And I think... Certainly, uh, from a Democratic perspective, critics will say, well, this is the entire reason that they're challenging these districts, which have been declared unconstitutional by a three um, by a panel of three federal judges. Uh, Republicans will say th these races were super tight. Uh, you know, national groups are willing to invest millions of dollars. The candidates themselves were able to raise millions of dollars. McCready and Manning, for example, outraised their Republican counterparts. And people wouldn't be willing to put that kind of money in if they didn't think that these seats were winnable. Um, you know, to the counter again, the Democrats would say, well, you know, they won the national uh, U.S. House by about five or six points and they still weren't able to flip a, a single house in North Carolina. So that shows that the districts are unfair. So I, I think either side can get something out of what happened. But uh, in the end, d Republicans still have 10 seats uh, from North Carolina in the U.S. House and, and Democrats only have three. What else surprised you about uh, the results for congressional seats uh, on Tuesday? 
I, I was surprised. Linda Coleman um, did very well in early voting in Wake County, um, and, and Democrats actually led in most of the most of the races around the state, or, or were very competitive after the early vote was counted. Um, but election day is still a Republican day. And, and George Holding is probably the best example of that, made up the deficit and then some with his performance on, um, on Election Day. And in Wake County, uh, he actually didn't lose Wake County by very many votes to Linda Coleman. Now, that doesn't include all of Wake County. As you said, Raleigh is pulled out of that district and put in David Price's district. Um, but, but in suburban Wake County, where we were just talking about some of these uh, races took place for the state legislature, um, George Holding was able to, to close that gap uh, considerably on Election Day. Um, so that, that was one of my takeaways. I think one of the other takeaways is just how difficult it is going to be for Democrats without new, new districts to win some of these seats. Um, the, I don't know if they'll get a better environment than they got in this midterm when you know the president's party tends to lose seats in the House. I don't know when a, an, an environment like that is going to come along again. 2020 is a presidential year. Senator Tom Tillis is on the ballot as well, uh, the governor's race. And, and so you would think that would attract people from both sides, uh, Republicans and Democrats, out to the polls. So I'm not sure, without redrawing the districts, how Democrats are going to get a better shot at taking one of those seats than they got this year. Do you think that they did anything wrong, the challengers? Did, 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 you know, did they run pretty smart campaigns? You know, I thought I thought McCready ran the kind of campaign you have to run. He, he sort of ran as a moderate Democrat, uh, you know, came out against Nancy Pelosi, didn't take uh, a lot of positions, which which may have cost him some votes. The, you know, Charlotte media was pretty tough on him for not answering questions, uh, but he played it down the middle. I, in Kathy Manning's case, uh, I, I think maybe some of the, the ads that the Bud campaign took out against her and, and outside groups took out against her as far as her dealings uh, in, in Greensboro with. Um, you know, her husband's company and things like that, although, you know, our fact checkers showed that, that they weren't exactly true. I, they may have had an impact, although that district is less urban and suburban than uh, North Carolina 2 or North Carolina 9, the, the Raleigh area one and the Charlotte area one. I think in, in Linda Coleman's case in North Carolina 2, you know, NBC News cast it as a, a generic R versus generic D in that race, in that holding, you know, ran pretty much as a generic Republican and Linda Coleman um, didn't take really any positions um, out, outside of Democratic orthodoxy. You wonder when you look at, at races like, and, and now these are two people who lost, but you look at Beto O'Rourke in Texas or Andrew Gillum in um in Florida competing in, in, you know, red or purple states, they tried to take, you know, sort of a personality based campaign where it was less about uh, Democrat and more about I want to support that person. Um, I wonder if Coleman or someone running in that district had, had run more as a personality um, and less as a generic Democrat if they would have had more success. It, it does seem like holding was ripe for for an upset uh, polling as late as August and early September had that race as a toss up. Uh, Coleman may have lacked the, the the dynamic personality to kind of put her over the top. And you wonder if uh, Ken Romley, who, who she defeated in the primary or Sam Searcy, who, who won a seat in the state uh, Senate and had originally uh, run in that in that congressional district, if someone like that had worked. Although I think being a woman and being African-American probably helped Linda Coleman. So so having a white male may, may not have created that, that difference. So I, I think Democrats will look at North Carolina, too, and North Carolina. Carolina nine, the Harris race, I think, has some missed opportunities. Um, however, you know, the math is is pretty strong in Republicans' favor in both of those districts. 
Brian, I have a question for you. What what sense did you get from the Coleman campaign? I saw on her Facebook where people would uh, claim to have called her campaign or emailed them or reached out to volunteer and never heard back. I mean, how how strong was the just the leadership and the infrastructure, the just the organizational structure there? It certainly wasn't as strong as I saw in other races, including in the Manning campaign. Um, you know, even though she lost by more, I felt like her organization w- was much stronger. Now, some of this may come down to money. The, the Manning campaign and the Hare- and the McCready campaign raised a lot more money than the Coleman campaign was able to raise. Uh, she really was dependent on some outside uh, money coming in. There was a dark money group that really hit holding over the summer. Uh, hammering him over his votes on health care and then late in the campaign Coleman got a lot of support from you know Emily's list from the um, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee a national DC group Um, but but I do think there you know if you look at the campaign if you're studying it I think there were some problems with the sort of the infrastructure of the campaign it probably wasn't as as solid as it should have been in a race that I think a lot of Democrats felt like wasn't on the board, and then by the time they saw that it was going to be close, it was maybe too late to build up that campaign infrastructure. But you do wonder if she had a little more money, if she could have had a better, uh, you know, get out the vote operation or a better uh, campaign infrastructure and reach some of these people, like you said, that were reaching out and wanted to volunteer. Uh, perhaps that would have been the difference for her. Did you see any other results around the country, Brian, that are, are notable or uh, have any implications uh, here? I think, you know, Democrats are going to take they're already up to about 33, 34, uh, possibly going to get to about 40 seats that they flipped. Um, That will certainly have implications here in D.C. Uh, David Price, who is, um, you know, a longtime member, represents Raleigh and and Chapel Hill, uh, is going to have a a very prominent role on the um, on the Appropriations Committee um, and which may have impacts in North Carolina. I think the Freedom Caucus, which now has three members from North Carolina, Mark Meadows, of course, is the chairman, but Mark Harris, who won that race, is joining, and Ted Budd is is also a member, is going to have even greater influence within the Republican Caucus. Uh, The Freedom Caucus grew on Tuesday while the Republican Conference got smaller. So as a percentage of Republicans, the Freedom Caucus is now larger, and are they able to stake out positions maybe to the right of where other Republicans want to be. And then I think the the biggest point, the biggest takeaway is that the moderate Republicans have been wiped out in many ways, much like moderate Democrats were wiped out in 2010 for the first midterms under Barack Obama. You look at where Republicans lost. Uh, Carlos Corbello is a climate change. um, He's not a climate change skeptic. He's a a climate change believer in Miami. He lost as a Republican. Um, The famous John Ossoff race out in suburban Atlanta. Um, Karen Handel has lost that race. Mia Love, who who was outside of Salt Lake City, lost. Uh, Pete Sessions, who was outside of Dallas, lost. A lot of suburban moderate Republicans lost. Up in the Northeast, in New Jersey and New York, they suffered big losses. In California, they suffered big losses. Part of that may be from policies that were put in place by the Republican House, including the tax bill, which really hammered um, high-income, high-tax states like California, New Jersey, New New York um, by lowering some deductions. So I think, if if anything, what you're going to see is is a more right-wing Republican Party because the moderates have now been wiped out. And you may see a more left-wing Democratic Party because that's where the energy is. And so, if anything, the House may be a little bit more polarized. Well, we haven't yet mentioned the constitutional amendments in North Carolina, and that's, I guess, because this is sort of a mixed bag. It's, it's, too, it's hard to say that that was a, 
good night for either the Democrats or the Republicans on that. Of course, the Republicans put six amendments on the ballot here in North Carolina. Um, two of them failed. Four of them passed. Um, voter ID might have been in some ways the most uh, prominent or well-known of those. Um, voter ID passed. Uh, the tax cap that caps the income tax at a lower rate passed. Um, a couple others on crime victims, the hunting and fishing passed. And then uh, the amendments that would take away power from Governor Cooper uh, failed. And uh, I wonder what you guys think about uh, why that happened and whether the former governors who came out against uh, the amendments uh, helped contribute to that or were they just too long and confusing? What, what do you think? I think there's a bit of that. Uh, the two specifically that were aimed at reducing the governor's power were really wordy, had a lot of pretty technical language in them. I think probably voters saw that and maybe got a little bit scared and said, I don't know if I want to do this. And so if you looked at the numbers, there were just in general fewer people voting on those two compared to the other four amendments. And then also obviously a lot more people voting against them. So I think a lot of people probably saw just that big block of text a bunch of stuff with changing the way that government fundamentally operates and said, I don't know if I want to change this. Um, the other four passed and all passed pretty handily. Um, two of them won't really do anything immediately. The hunting and fishing one doesn't really make any changes and the tax cap one doesn't lower anyone's taxes uh, because the income tax rate is already below the cap. It just prevents future tax hikes from being as high as they could have potentially been. Uh, so those won't have any immediate effects. Uh, the two that will have an immediate impact are the voter ID, which the legislature is going to come back in about two, two and a half weeks uh, right after Thanksgiving to write that law. We, we haven't seen the law yet, so we don't know what's going to be in it, uh, but they're going to write that. And then also uh, Marcy's law, which was the crime victims uh, amendment. Uh, that'll go into effect and um, put a lot more work on local district attorney's offices to to work with people who've been the victims of crimes to make sure that they're a little bit more involved in the justice system. And uh, that's gonna actually, that's gonna create a bunch of jobs in district attorney's offices all over the state, uh, which also means increased state spending. Uh, I think we've seen estimates of anywhere from like 11 to $30 million a year to fund all of those positions that's gonna create, but uh, so yeah. And apparently the legislature may actually write some legislation to implement that, um, which I didn't realize was necessarily uh, uh, the case. But uh, Lynn Bonner's story last night uh, quoted some, uh, this, this, I believe, a, a source from the Senate saying um, that they would look at writing some legislation on that when they came back in November. Um, but as you say, the main thing that they will do in uh, this month, later this month is write a voter ID law that will actually say what kind of ID is needed because that was not part of the amendment. The amendment just said that a photo ID will be needed. Um, and uh, this will happen in a lame duck session. Uh, and that's for a very good reason because the supermajority will not be broken. The supermajority will still exist. And uh, Republicans can write that law uh, as they wish. And we do not need uh, Governor Roy Cooper's uh, approval for it. And um, do you think that, what do you think will come out of that? And, and do you think there's anything else that will come out of that lame duck session? Do you think they'll try to um, pass anything else while they still have uh, the ability to bypass Cooper? Well, I think the big question is basically going to be, has the legislature learned its lessons from the 2013 voter ID law, which was overturned as unconstitutional in federal court? 
Um, and basically the reason why that happened was they went beyond just doing voter ID. Uh, most states in the country have some sort of voter ID law. Not all of them require photo ID. Some of them let you bring in like your utility bill from your house or something like that. Um, but ours was struck down as unconstitutional because we went beyond just requiring photo ID. We did stuff like messing with early voting, uh, ending uh, the ability of teenagers to kind of pre-register to vote when they got their driver's license, um, and did so in a way that the federal courts found was intended to discriminate against African-American voters. So it was kind of that above and beyond that got it ruled unconstitutional. So we'll see if the legislature does all of that same stuff again or does similar things again or if they keep it pretty narrowly limited to just voter ID, which is clearly constitutional and most states have that. I have no reason to believe they'll do this, uh, or I have no, no one suggested this to me, but it wouldn't surprise me if they uh, floated a bill or tried to reduce some of Cooper's powers while they still can. I mean, that's what they did uh, after he beat McCrory in 2016. Um, they just had these two amendments fail. Uh, they probably have some other things that they might want to take a last shot at um, while they still can. What's interesting, uh, sorry to interrupt, but what's interesting about that is a similar situation is playing out in Wisconsin where Scott Walker lost, uh, but there's still a Republican legislature and, and Tony Evers is now going to be the governor. And uh, in their lame duck session, Wisconsin's looking at possibly uh, you know, making some moves to strip the governor of power before the Democrat gets in office. So certainly not uh, not unheard of for a lame ducks uh, to, to try to do something like that. Sounds like what was pioneered in North Carolina and exported elsewhere. Uh, at least I don't know of any other state that did that first, but certainly after Cooper uh, uh, won but had not yet taken office, the legislature limited a fair amount of his powers, and those are still being fought over in court, um, which actually uh, there are, uh, that reminds me that there are a number of things related to this election that will still have to be fought out in court, and uh, I think there are still court cases uh, that will uh, go forward about the the districts, uh, about the election board. Now that we don't have, now that voters have rejected an election board amendment, we still have <coughs> this court case that will decide what the election board will actually look like, um, because the existing one has been struck down and really only has authority to count the votes and then uh, has to disband, I suppose. Yeah, uh, that happened right before the election, but luckily the judges were smart enough to not actually disband the election board like a week before the election. Um, <laughs> they, they let it continue operating. Um, so yeah, that's, that's gonna be soon on the radar for figuring out how that's gonna happen, how that'll operate in the future. And then also gerrymandering is the big thing. Uh, there is a court case that came down just a couple days ago ruling some of the Wake County uh, State House districts unconstitutional, um, which are now held by Democrats. They had previously been held by Republicans, but those will have to be drawn. Uh, and that's going to have to happen in the spring of 2019. I think their deadline for that is June or July of 2019. And then, obviously, the federal maps, that lawsuit is still ongoing. Um, I think kind of uh, the fact that the Democrats weren't able to flip any of those close House seats uh, actually kind of helps out the anti-gerrymandering activists a little bit uh, who had that lawsuit going. And you know now they can point and say, hey, look, you know, the same Democratic wave that flipped a bunch of state legislative seats in North Carolina was unable to flip any House seats in Congress and point to that as proof that, you know, there's 
definitely a gerrymander going on. The, uh, the last thing I should say is even though um, we did not have voter ID uh, actually in place this election, um, some voters did report having trouble voting for various reasons. Um, Rashawn, you were paying attention to um, what voters were running into both on election day and, and since then. Uh, what, what did people see that uh, made it harder to vote? Well, the humidity, first of all, which I don't think most people were expecting, <laughs> but we pre-reported that humidity, like the weather might be an issue. So apparently humidity makes ballot papers thicker. So it's harder for them to go through the scanners and it led to a lot of paper jams. And then um, in, I believe, uh, Lenore County, they had thicker, no, sorry. Yeah, Lenore County, no, get that mixed. Harnett County had thicker ballots. So the cutter, the printer that cut the papers cut them like a hair so thick that they jammed and they had to recopy everyone's ballots um, by hand. So that took them a while. And then Lenore County had an issue with one-stop voters. So there was something going around in some media outlets that they lost ballots. They didn't lose any ballots. They confirmed that they were just having an issue and that they, you know, with getting the ballots in and all those things. Um, and some people were complaining about having to show their IDs. So Patrick Gannon from the State Board of Elections kind of explained how some of these people having to show IDs when they registered, it was probably incomplete registration. Like they might have provided a driver's license or a social security number to verify they are a real person, which is why they had to show their ID. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't too much going on where people were trying to stop others from voting. So that did not happen at all. Right, because if you, didn't show that kind of ID when you registered, then you might be asked for it. And some people were saying that they registered to vote when they got their license at the DMV, but then they showed up to polling places um, and then they weren't registered to vote. That was the case for some people, but for the majority, they probably just forgot that they you know, didn't register to vote or they signed some kind of waiver saying, oh, at this time I don't wanna register to vote. So it was just like a mix up of people not knowing. It was interesting to see in some states around the country um, passing laws that uh, either automatically enroll people to register to vote um, or curb gerrymandering in some way with independent redistricting commissions. Uh, so there was actually a lot of, of activity around the country this year related to, um, the right to the right to vote. And I would not be surprised if uh, the first move made by the Democratic majority in the U.S. House is to, um, you know, tackle voting rights in, in some way um, to try to expand, you know, access to the ballot. I think Democrats really see that as, as you know, one of the issues that they can make hay on. In Florida, uh, Will, I know this, that's your territory, but I think they restored voting rights for uh, felons who had uh, served their time. Uh, which was a big thing. I think it affected, what, 1.5 million Huge people? Of people? A lot of people. Yeah. I think that's larger than some populations for some states. There's like a whole number of like, oh, they've got more inmates now or former federal offenders voting than people in like random Midwestern states. That's Florida for you. <laughs> and a huge amount of that is, uh, you know, uh, is African-American voters. So it really, you know, disproportionately affects uh, um, people by race. Uh, what else? Any other results that you guys saw that are notable either here or around the country, or should we move on to a headliner? One last thing I think we should say is that the state Supreme Court is now a 5-2 um, divide with uh, 
Democrats and liberal-leaning uh, justices making up that majority. Uh, Anita Earls uh, easily beat out uh, the incumbent, Barbara Jackson, because uh, of uh, Chris Anglin, uh, a local attorney, filing as a Republican at the last minute and splitting that vote. Um, and, you know, up until that the ballot was settled, that was billed last year and earlier this year as a huge race, one that was going to be, you know, critical that the parties were going to spend lots of money on, and it ended up being a snoozer. I mean, it was said and done, and um, not even close. And so I, you know, I I think it's just interesting how things play out. Um, obviously, I think. Our colleague Colin Campbell tweeted out that Dean Debnam, a local attorney known for uh, his giving to liberal candidates, uh, gave money to Chris Anglin, who, uh, as I mentioned before, registered as a Republican uh, to, run against, to run against Earls and Barbara Jackson, who is also a Republican. So um, you just never know. A year is a long time, that, and, um, but, <laughs> but this race was basically over before it started on election day because of that split vote and i know that uh, the election pizza hasn't even been finished yet but i already looking ahead to 2020 whereas north carolina wasn't in the national headlines this year for its election 2020 uh senator tillis's race in 2014 against um uh, Kay hagan w was the most expensive senate race in u.s history at that point it will probably again be at the top of democratic wish lists in 2020 plus you'll have a governor's race uh roy cooper i, I dan Forrest already sounds like he's running for governor we'll see what other republicans want to jump in and then the republican national convention is going to charlotte uh in 2020 and donald trump uh presumably will be renominated for his second um you know run at at the at the presidency and so 2020 is going to get started i think faster than any of us uh realize or hope uh, uh we're going to be you know, North Carolina, I think, is going to be the epicenter of the 2020 election in a lot of ways. Please, please give us a little more time here before we uh, get into all that. <laughs> all right. I think we're good. Let's take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. So, ladies and gentlemen, as we close things down tonight, I want to thank everybody, everybody for coming here this evening. It's been a great party, hasn't it? There's some great news, some great candidates, some elected officials that we now have made elected officials and as we continue to have good news into the wee hours of the morning just know that the number one goal of your North Carolina Democratic Party has been met and that is to break the Republican stranglehold in the legislature headliner of the week 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 Hot. We're back with more Domecast, and now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, uh, where we usually decide the most interesting or uh, important person in this week's news. Um, a little bit of a twist this time around. Um, who do you guys think is the most uh, is the is the winner on Tuesday? Uh, who people should watch? Brian Murphy. 
I, I would say Mark Harris. I mean, he, he defeated an incumbent uh, sitting Republican representative in the primary, and then he beat a very well-funded uh, Dan McCready um, in the in the general election. Uh, people, I think most people thought Dan McCready was going to win that race and would be well on his way to having a, um, you know, a, a long and prosperous political career. So Mark Harris is going to join the Freedom Caucus, I think um, is going to have an impact on, on you know, the the U.S. House in a lot of ways. So I would say Mark Harris. Rashawn, who's your winner to watch? We've mentioned him already, even though he wasn't technically on the ballot, Baroy Cooper. He is a little safe now. He gets some of his veto power back. And two of the amendments that would have stripped him some of more of his powers didn't pass. So that's good news for him, too. Um, yeah, so I nominate Roy Cooper. Okay. Will Dorn, who's your winner to watch? I think one person will be interesting is Walter Jones, uh, the congressman from Eastern North Carolina, who's been a moderate Republican, uh, has been one of the more uh, willing Republicans to kind of side with Democrats on some things in Congress. And now that Democrats have control of the House, I think he could be, again, in play as someone that the Democrats look to on the Republican side if they need a vote on some uh, some close votes, some controversial stuff. He's also been one of the, the few Republicans in Congress who's kind of been willing to, you know, to stand up a little bit to President Trump on some things. Obviously, the trade wars and the tariffs really affect his district a lot. So, you know, as, you know, as, as farmers kind of get back into focus with all of that, uh, you know, he's going to play, play a role there. So, uh, and then this is also his, going to be probably his last term in Congress. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's not really running for anything for the next two years uh he you know he's said he wants to wants to be out so uh a little bit of a wild card there from eastern north carolina in uh in walter jones all right andy who's your winner to watch all right i'm gonna give you two i'm sorry i'm gonna break the rules That's a little not bit allowed. uh first i'm gonna go with sydney batch she's an attorney and she ran uh, she's a political newcomer who ran for a republican seat in wake county and won and uh, in the middle of her campaign, uh, she found out that she had cancer and she's been battling it. And so she suspended some of her appearances, but her campaign carried on. And she beat a uh, formidable can candidate and John Adcock, someone who um, was appointed to the seat after Linda Hunt Williams left, uh, but had no scandals. You know, John Adcock seemed like an upright uh, guy and he um, was always nice to me. Um, and I thought he'd win that race, and he didn't. And Batch, uh, her campaign just got a lot of attention, uh, not only from local people, not only from the Republican and Democratic parties, uh, and not only from donors out of state, uh, but I, I think you could see her um, rising very quickly as um, an African-American woman who's an attorney uh, who is going to very quickly have name recognition. Um, Pivot to my second person. Uh, you mentioned Tillis in 2020, uh, and how uh, obviously he's probably going to run again, and it's going to be a huge year. And the demographics of North Carolina are changing. Uh, one person I would watch to challenge him is Senator Jeff Jackson. Jeff Jackson made headlines uh, this election season not because he won; everyone expected him to win, but he is um, 
I think universally known as one of the nicest legislators in the state. He made news, he and his Republican opponent made news for how nice they were to each other. There were no nasty ads. Um, and uh, Jackson just has a huge following out in Charlotte. And he's even known somewhat here in Raleigh. So I wouldn't be surprised if Democrat Jeff Jackson ran against Tom Tillis in 2020. I have some friends who live here in the Triangle who have no idea who represents them in the state legislature, but they know Jeff Jackson's name. Mm -hmm. He's very media savvy. Um, and like I said, it, I've never heard him insult anyone. He doesn't play, he doesn't sling dirt from what I've heard. Um, but those two, so Sydney Batch, uh, Democratic woman who knew, uh, attorney from Wake County, and then Jeff Jackson. All right. Those are two excellent, excellent choices. Uh, they cancel each other out, however. Oh. So, um, uh, so I'm going to go with Rashawn's choice of Roy Cooper, uh, a little bit out of left field since he was not on the ballot Tuesday, but he might as well have been because so much of this uh, really affects whether he has any role uh, in uh, North Carolina politics, and, uh, and it looks like he'll have a bigger one. So uh, Roy Cooper is our headliner, and Rashawn Aish is our winner this week. And that's it for Domecast. For Will Doran, Andy Spey, Rashawn Aish, and Brian Murphy, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next time on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.